As Brother Gary mentioned earlier, and as we've each no doubt expressed in our heart, what a great opportunity and how thankful we ought to be to be able to assemble and to gather today. Isn't it true that in Jeremiah 17, 7, the ancient writer of old said, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. Isn't it a tremendous blessing to be able to trust in God, to have confidence in His promises, and to appreciate that with Him all indeed is well. As we come this morning to this aspect of our worship time together, it is truly an opportunity to allow the Word of God to touch our lives, our hearts, and to lead us truly in the understanding that is most needful. At this point, may I say that the text of James 4.4 is where the reading was just a moment ago. As you reflect on that passage with me, let's see if we can elaborate and develop somewhat in the following way the beginning of our lesson this morning. Isn't it amazing that we find in the midst of this little five-chapter epistle of James so many practical, down-to-earth understandings that assist us daily in living as we should. There have been those that have asserted that James is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Little statements that touch the very aspect daily of your life and mine. For instance, in chapter 3 of this book, how do we speak correctly? What about the nature of the proper use of the tongue? In chapter number 1, what is pure religion? You notice verse 27 informed us it had to do with visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and remaining unspotted from the world. Today, as we come to the fourth chapter, we will give some thought to the enemy of God. I'm sure each of us would be well to say that being the enemy of God surely must be one of the most awful predicaments in which one could ever be. It's one thing to be an enemy of the state, and you and I as Christians are already that. But to be reckoned as the enemy of God, to be reckoned as one who resisted, opposed, or stood contrary to God would doom you and I very quickly, wouldn't it? Let me ask you to consider some of these statements about God. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, doesn't it, that our God is infinite in understanding. Psalm 147, verse number 5. The Bible tells us very clearly He is thoroughly equipped by way of both knowledge and power to understand the very thoughts of your heart and mine. There is no thought that's withholding from Him. That statement, for instance, of Hebrews 4.13 is certainly appropriate to reflect on in that light. If God then is so powerful and if He is apprised of everything, wouldn't it be extraordinarily foolish? Yea, wouldn't it even be the highest of folly to oppose Him in some way? Even Gamaliel asserted that, didn't he, in Acts chapter 5. On that occasion, he even stated how foolish it is to resist God. The enemy of God, if it's so foolish to oppose Him, and if it's such folly to do so, isn't it a strange thing that there are multitudes in the world today that do it? Multitudes who straightforwardly stand against what He asserts, what He teaches. And so let's study for the remainder of our time this morning about the very nature of being the enemy of God. To do that, let's then turn to the next slide and proceed as follows. Doing so by looking at that passage before us. I'd invite you to read it again. It then again says in James 4, verse number 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, 
Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Perhaps it might have been thought based on the title of the lesson that to speak of the enemy of God, maybe our emphasis would be on the devil. Maybe our emphasis would be on Satan and one could in fact give thought to that approach. But that's not the thrust that James sets before us, is it? Those that are the enemy of God in this passage are the very ones who are friends of the world. Friendship with the world. Those that associate with it. Those that condone, approve, and pursue. Those matters that are set before us by virtue of, of the world. You'll notice in light of that, some of these comments very much are almost striking. The way James begins the verse... Ye adulterers and adulteresses? I think we'd all agree that's not the way immediately you would think to gain someone's favor. You start a conversation with someone and directly accuse them of adultery. You directly accuse them of some particular crime of sin known in that way. And yet, James says, ye adulterers, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Some of those words develop in the following way. The Bible on many occasions uses that term adultery, not only with a physical appreciation, but also a spiritual one. A person can be guilty of spiritual adultery. That is to say, one perhaps as a Christian should be faithful to God. After all, Jesus is the bridegroom, and you and I as the church are His bride, and therefore we should be ultimately given to fidelity to Him in every regard. Thus, if we give our attention to another spiritually, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. And yet James asserts that those on this occasion should give serious reflection of that thought. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word enmity means hostility. It means to be adversary to. It is true then, James says, in terms of this question, it's a fact that they knew and it's a fact you and I know. It's asked in a rhetorical fashion, again, as if the particular answer was already known. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes one hostile with God? Friendship with the world, association at the most basic level with it, makes one an enemy of God. As if that wasn't enough, he then closes the verse by restating it from an opposite viewpoint. Whosoever therefore... That word therefore identifies a conclusion, doesn't it? A statement of summary is being reached and he says, Whosoever, any individual, man or woman, boy or girl of whom this statement is applicable, is thus in the matter of its conclusion. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. How often in the Old Testament did we see the terrible fate of those that were enemies of God? Those enemies that in fact fought against Israel, and yet Israel would overwhelm them or overcome them on many occasions. We all remember the scene at Jericho a walled city, but yet those walls were no match for God, for His forces, for His commandments. All Israel had to do was follow the dictates and mandates of God. The walls crumbled and Jericho was easy to be conquered. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 
What does it mean to be a friend of the world? In what way should you and I be clearly on guard with respect to that idea? After all, what was so true and pertinent for those in the first century, those to whom James was writing, the particular thrust of it hasn't reduced in the slightest. You'll notice as you come near the bottom of that slide, many passages that remind you and me about that importance. And it's not just in the New Testament. You'll notice that in Galatians 1.10, didn't Paul, as he wrote to the Galatian brethren, assert that if I myself pursue or follow those things of the world, I'm not the servant of Christ. It would be a shame to speak with forked tongue in that sense, wouldn't it? To claim that I am a follower of Christ and that of God, but yet my life indicates I'm not. I am far more a follower of the devil by doing what he wants rather than doing what God demands. Another example, those words of our Savior in John 17 in verse 14, as he prayed with such earnestness for those apostles that would carry on the effort and work of Christianity, he prayed that although they lived in the world, that they'd not be of the world. Their primary destination, their thrust, their goal, their objective was not centered on this earth. Sometimes we sing a song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Oh, may you and I believe that heartily, follow it thoroughly, and with the greatest of devotion understand that we must never be a friend of the world, else we're the enemy of God. Even in the Old Testament, I thought it a bit interesting that among the other chapters you and I have read this past week were Psalm 101. That psalm is relatively brief. I'd like to read the eight verses of Psalm 101 and listen to even in the Old Testament how the emphasis assists us to understand with care how we must live in this world. Psalm 101. I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave unto me. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect heart, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. The psalmist, among other things on that occasion, said, I will surround myself with godliness. I won't tolerate wickedness and lying and other matters about me. I'll strive to order my house in the utmost highness of uprightness. You'll notice that sounds a lot like the friendship of the world is the enemy of God. May I suggest to you in light of those thoughts, let's develop some particulars in light of this. What are some things that are about you and me in the world, and if you and I pursue them, if we follow them, if we support them, we would then reckon ourselves as an enemy of God. Maybe before us, almost immediately in light of the context of the passage, comes 
this description of restrictive religion. One of the things that our world seemingly likes is it wants to hold on to religion. It likes the attachment to religion. However, that's about as far as the association goes. Religion that's too restrictive is far too fundamentalist. Religion that's too restrictive hampers the usage of my abilities and my talents in the employment of expression of praise to God. And so, although religion is fine, religion that's too restrictive apparently is not good. That's what our world says. Look at the context of the first four verses of James 4 and notice in what context this very matter is found. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. This feeling, you'll notice, that's described in these verses... Did you notice mention is made of lusts? Mention is made of murders or killing? Mention is made of covetousness? Mention is made of these attributes that war against the matter of godliness. And yet many times this religion of our day seemingly encourages some of the very things here that the writer of James condemns. Look at the developments that you find on this slide. This matter of religion that's too restrictive. Religion is not a wholesome matter at all unless it's religion based on what God says. What I think or what you may think, what someone else may assert is wholly irrelevant, immaterial, and unimportant in the final analysis, isn't it? What saith the Scripture? Paul's famous question of Romans 4.3. Paul did not rely upon what he perceived, what others suggested, what scholars asserted. It only mattered is, what does God declare? And that thought hasn't changed in the slightest, has it? You'll notice that Jesus, did He not say in John 6 verse 63, The words that I say unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. The life that you and I wish to appreciate, enjoy, and know is a life spiritually utterly founded only in the very words of our Master, the statements of New Testament Scripture. In light of an appreciation like that one, what was it that Paul asserted in 2 Corinthians 10? In verses 3 through 5 of that chapter, here was that ancient city of Corinth, a city known for its wickedness, known for the evil that took place in the environs of it. And yet to them, Paul wrote to this nucleus of people in the church and said, every thought must be brought in captivity to the knowledge of Christ. He didn't say most thoughts. He said every thought. Thus, those thoughts of murder or lust or other kinds of activities mentioned in James 4, those need to be brought into captivity. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The world so often, as prompted by the devil, seeks to lead you and I away from faithfulness. The devil wants nothing more than for you and I to lapse into friendship with the world. Often that leads to popularity and fame. It leads to notoriety. It leads to nobility in the eyes of mankind. But it leads to being the enemy of God. And if only we could see, if only we could appreciate that in its fullest 
how sweetly we would cling near to the side of the Master. As you come to the bottom of that slide, may I say that the very language that Paul used in that 2 Corinthians 10 passage, every thought into captivity, that literally means to make a prisoner. I thought that association was very interesting. That is, you and I should labor to make every thought imprisoned to the very nature of godliness. Now, that's a challenge in many ways, isn't it? Because of some of the activities that we're about to study. What is it that takes place about us that wars against the soul and sets before us the nature of ungodliness and friendship with the world is encouraged? Maybe we can start here. Does the way you and I choose to dress have an impact on our friendship with the world? And does it therefore have an impact in the way that God looks upon you and me? And we know for certain that it does. It is not a matter of arbitrary character, is it? Our world would have it say, you dress in whatever way is comfortable. But that's not their arbitrary standard, is it? Consider with me some of these features about the way you and I choose to dress sometimes. Brother Jonathan, as I recall, had an article in the bulletin only a couple of weeks ago in which he challenged us to think about that daily decision on what am I going to wear today. We know the world often has no thought relative to this. They wear whatever they want to, no matter how inappropriate it may appear. But you and I, as those who claim devotion to the Lord, have a much, much higher standard than that, don't we? A standard that the very Word of God demands of us to not give any impression of being a friend of the world. When we thus see dresses or blouses of ladies with low plunging necklines and often midsections that are exposed, shorts and other things sufficiently short, nothing is concealed. And sometimes the men are about as guilty. Their shorts can be far too short, sometimes go shirtless in public. All of that reminds us, do we have an obligation as members of the body of Christ, those claiming association to the Master, to never, ever be a friend of the world? We know what our world thinks about dress. Nothing is off limits, it would seem. But isn't it different in the blessed Word of God? We take great comfort in the fact that God's Word impresses upon us some thoughts that I would ask you to think like these. What is the purpose for the clothing that we do wear? Is the purpose of the clothing to expose the most or to cover the most? Well, obviously, the whole nature of that clothing is, of course, to dress in a way that the Bible would describe as appropriate, modest, and shamefaced in particular. The body is not made for fornication. God fashioned this human body, the male and the female in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, and He did so following the pattern and imprint of His divine will. And He did not make the human body for the purpose of fornication. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. That means it isn't made to encourage it, condone it, approve it, and yet there are many that seemingly dress in a very way they want others to lust after them. They want others to look upon them and ogle with various and sundry thoughts of iniquity. No wonder you and I must choose then to dress very carefully. Fathers, grandfathers, do you want strange men looking on your daughters? 
Do you want them looking upon the women in your family and thinking lustful thoughts? I'm sure there's not a one of us that say we want that. Ladies, do you want other women looking on your husbands or the boys in your family, the men in your family, and having lustful thoughts when they look at them because they're dressed inappropriately? Again, I think all of us would answer no. Then we should dress accordingly. When we say to dress accordingly, look with me at some verses like these. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 4. Paul, as he wrote to the Thessalonian brethren, directly asserted to them that the vessel, the human body, must be possessed in sanctification. That is to say, your body and mind is housed, if you please. It is restricted. In a way, it presents the very matter of sanctification to God. That's just the opposite of friendship with the world, isn't it? Although the world may dress scantily clad, a child of God will not. Although the world may dress in ways that are exceedingly encouraging of lust, a child of God will not. May I ask then, are you and I a friend of the world? Or are we a devoted servant of God? Because if we are a friend of the world and we dress in ways like that, we're the enemy of God. Maybe one final passage along that line would be that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. There are times when individuals develop relationships, a boy and a girl, and sometimes pressure is placed upon one to dress somewhat loosely. If you love me, he or she might say, you might dress this way. May we never ever forget that love does not rejoice in evil. It doesn't. The person who would say that doesn't love you. That person might want to take advantage of you. That person might want to use you for ulterior motives, but he or she does not love you. Because love never rejoices in what's wrong. The way we dress, then, is one set of questions that does ask us, am I a friend of the world and as such an enemy of God? You and I, then, each day have the opportunity to make a choice on which side of that we'd wish to be. What about another consideration? Our world is openly approving of alcohol as a social beverage, isn't it? There is no question about that. We see television commercials in mass encouraging to drink responsibly, but there is no restriction on, if you please, the drink. The various beer makers and manufacturers, the various and sundry appreciations, not only of them, but of the various wine distributors, our world is awash in social drinking, isn't it? Sometimes as you think about that matter, that slide gives way to the next one. Although it's true that there might be many who would oppose it, there are even some in the church that do not. I myself have heard of preachers, individuals who would say that God's book does not oppose social drinking. They're going to stand before the God of heaven and give an answer for that kind of thinking. They obviously have not read with care certain passages and certain verses that you and I will notice in just a moment. As you give thought to the matter of social drinking, after a hard day's work, could I stop on the way home and enjoy a beer or two with my buddies? Can I do that with certain approval of the very God that made me? May we say the world says absolutely you can. That's just a way to let off the steam of the day. May I say, if God condemns that, though the world approves it, if I engage therein, do I not make myself an enemy of God? 
That's what James affirmed. Look then at some of these appreciations with me. On this particular slide, you'll notice the Bible is not silent on the subject of social drinking. Many think that it is, but again, what about passages like those at the top of that slide? In the fifth chapter of the Ephesian letter, Paul, in writing to those brethren, said, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, wherein is excess. That word excess means riot. It does not mean drinking too much. It means ridiculously foolish behavior. Be not drunk with wine. The original passage, the Greek verb that's used means to begin to be softened. First drink to last is what's under Paul's description. Not just some state of total inebriation. And thus Paul has condemned the very matter of what would be an initial attempt, an initial drink, if you please. Let's ask what kind of influence a person would have under that kind of situation. What does it also say about that passage in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4? On that occasion, as Peter addressed those to whom he wrote, he made a listing of several sinful behaviors, and in that list, he included what you and I would call excess of wine, a state of final total inebriation. But he also included two other references to drinking, both of which have relation to moderation. Moderate social drinking is just as wrong as complete total inebriation. As Peter addressed both of those circumstances there, may you and I again ponder for just a moment what the world asserts. The world thinks nothing about social drinking. We know that. We see it everywhere around us. It seems as though with each passing month, new abilities are made available to, to have it. Walmart has a whole aisle full of it. Local grocery stores now can carry alcoholic beverages. There was a time you couldn't buy them on Sunday, but the laws have been relaxed. Now, leave the church building and go buy you some on the way home is what our world says. But God doesn't say it. It is the devil's beverage, plain and simple. To participate therein is to make oneself the enemy of God. There is an interesting verb used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that speaks volumes about the thrust of this whole matter. In verses 6 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, the inspired apostle gives commandments to those that would be followers of God by saying, Be sober. That's a commandment. It isn't left as an option to any person desirous of pleasing God. We must be sober. That word means to abstain from wine. To abstain from it. Not take a little, not take some, abstain from it. If you and I are thus to remain sober, that is clear-minded and of sound judgment, we must remain aloof from those things that would purposefully impair our ability to judge properly. Social drinking. Are you and I a friend of the world and therefore an enemy of God? If we condone it, if we allow it, if we participate in it, we are so. May we stand strong in our families, arriving at the appreciation of just how the Bible speaks about this matter and to never allow ourselves to be a friend of the world. You'll notice as you come next on that slide, there's a description of another activity that seemingly has engulfed our land. Almost every state 
openly encourages gambling. Very few states do not have a legalized lottery. Furthermore, we have casinos seemingly growing in mass around our land. Las Vegas is known for its abilities to allow one to gamble at will. There are even places much closer to here. Mississippi has its gambling center in Tupelo, as best I remember. Their advertisements on the radio at least indicate so. We know that Missouri has theirs, riverboat gambling. Nashville even displays opportunities on the radio. You could take day excursions to Illinois and they'll even provide you with money to gamble. Interesting, isn't it? Does the Bible say anything about gambling? Does it have anything to help hone your understanding in mind? Again, our only interest is what does God say about it? You might notice that it begins with a bit of a definition. Gambling involves an artificially created game of chance. But in addition to that, there is the statement, the wager of something valuable. And certainly there are those that lose and there are those that win. And might we say there are very, very many losers and very, very few winners. As you think about a definition perhaps like that one, it does bring us to that next set of comments that we and I might state like this. Aren't we of a disposition to appreciate that God has promised to load with blessings those that are His children and those who pursue His way, Psalm 68, 19? And didn't Jesus promise to those that love Him all things will be taken care of, your food, your clothing, your shelter, Matthew 6, verses 24 to 32. In light of those kinds of promises, blessings, and rewards, look at what these next statements set before us. God does demand good stewardship on our part. That is a part of what is set before us in passages such as Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. There we remember that the talent literally under discussion was an amount of money, and the one talent man didn't use it. The others did, but he didn't. He hid it. Might we say, what about the appreciation of God toward those that would take what they have and frivolously waste it gambling on what has almost zero odds of winning? And that's what gambling does. You'll also notice, not only is that passage before us, but it seems in Proverbs God says something about it. In Proverbs 13, 11, there is a curse, that is to say, a very sad condemnation placed upon those who gain riches by vanity. God authorizes you and me to benefit by way of working for that which He blesses us with. As you and I think about that, isn't that the statement of Ephesians 4? He says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands the thing that is good that he may have to give to him that needeth you'll notice there is a premise of labor in response for what is obtained. Gambling seeks to exploit those, typically who are the poor, and take from them and that you and I might be bettered. That's not the philosophy indicative of the Word of God, is it? When you and I think about gambling in that regard, you'll notice that that particular principle about vanity and the nature of what will happen to those riches does make one think twice. Solomon stated that in the ancient days of old. In what way could one obtain riches and vanity in that day and time? 
that was long before there were states with legalized lotteries. What might Solomon have had in mind? It would seem that the ancient premise attached to a kind of gambling is the very thing that Solomon was discussing. If that be true, then again might we ask, what about stopping and while you're filling up with gasoline to buy a lottery ticket or two? After all, they're typically only about a dollar. Is that wrong? Sure it is. Might you and I appreciate that though the world says there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing inappropriate about that. The slogan that the Tennessee Lottery uses for advertisement, fun in an instant. Isn't it fun to see whether you win or not? That's what they want you to think about. But yet God says, in the appreciation of what basically gambling is, His Word doesn't authorize it. In fact, it places a condemnation on it. Will you and I be a friend of the world and therefore the enemy of God? Or will we cling tightly to that which the Bible endorses? The choice is left to you and to me. So far as we have looked at these particular kinds of activities, social drinking, restrictive religion, the characteristic attached in this most recent instance to this matter of gambling, all the while it does cause us to think not once but twice. Oh, what the world does before us. It is tempting to follow right along with it, isn't it? To do what the world encourages, for after all, multiplied thousands see no problem with it, but yet God sees a problem with it. And His Word asserts that if you and I expect to inherit a home in heaven, we cannot be a friend of the world, because if so, we're the enemy of God. What about you or what about me this morning? As we've looked one by one at these particular matters, James's statement of 20 centuries ago is still as telling as it was then. They could be a friend of the world. You and I can be, but may we ever with wisdom choose not to be. Others will insult you and I sometimes. Others will frown and they'll wonder, why don't you do that? Have you ever had someone ask you, Maybe you at work are invited to a particular business luncheon and everybody drinks but you? Have you ever asked them afterward, why? It does allow an opportunity to express your heartfelt conviction of what the Bible teaches. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear. I trust we'll all be equipped with that capability. And this very morning, if you find yourself in some way, maybe not in any of these things we've described, but maybe in others, that you realize you are a friend of the world, please don't leave this building in that condition because you're the enemy of God and you have no hope. But the blood of Jesus Christ will forgive all those sins. The plan of salvation demands that if you've never become a Christian, that you... Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. You repent of your sins. You confess His name as the Son of God, and then you be baptized. If we could be of help to you in that regard today, please let us know. If you have become a faithful member of the body of Christ, but over time you have become a friend of the world, you have allowed little by little in gradual character things of the world to entrap your mind, and now you've, you've actually encouraged them. Don't continue in that state. Come back to the blood 
of the one who died for you. He's promised if you'll pray for repentance, if you'll pray in light of confessing those sins, that He will forgive them. Today, if we could be of help to anybody in the audience, we'd only invite you to let us know. And why not do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?